0: Vanessa.
1: Hey, Dom. How's Israel?
0: Oh my God. Taking a vacation is amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I just got back from mine and it's, it's coming back was a bitch though. Let me tell you.
0: Yeah. The the return is harsh. (laughs) Back to
1: reality, not as fun.
0: But here we are. We're back. Welcome to uncertain things. Back from our much needed vacation. And actually just before going on vacation, we recorded one, I think one of my favorite interviews with Sarah Isger. I personally was not at my best, because we were just recovering from an all-night celebration of your fiancé's name uh, day. Oh,
1: yeah, I forgot. So
0: there was still a lot of alcoholic residue in my in my brain. I
1: was fine, and my partner was incredibly hungover.
0: I, for which I take full credit. But Sarah was fantastic to talk to.
1: Yeah, she carried it.
0: She's the co-host of Advisory Opinions Podcast with... David French, whom we had on the podcast previously. And she has a career in uh, political campaigning. She was the campaign manager for Carly Fiorina and was even part of former Attorney General Jeff Sessions' Department of Justice for a while, for the Trump administration, the early days. So she was there for Jeff Sessions' recusal and the beginning of the Mueller investigation.
1: That was fascinating, hearing her first-person account of that.
0: So as a political and legal analyst, she is. Is something else.
1: The other thing I also thought was really interesting was like one of the reasons why she got into politics in the first place was that she was a big fan of the West Wing. And I have to say, like, I don't think I've ever met a person in real life that is more like a West Wing character than Sarah is <laughs> She's like a real-life, real-life Aaron Sorkian creation there. She
0: really freaking is. And this actually brought us to talk about certain issues with which she's been grappling herself that she joined the Jeff Sessions' Department of Justice, at least according to her, and it opens up a whole question about the subjective moment of deciding to join the Trump White House. But according to her, the way she recalls it, she joined the administration thinking that she's going to be one of those players waiting in the dark to ensure that government isn't pushed off the rails under Trump. She saw it as her duty to put herself as a guardrail against Trump's creeping authoritarianism and just brutish incompetence. But now, almost five years later, with the pandemic and Trump trying to steal an election on January 6th, she started asking herself, did she do the right thing? Was going there, was being part of that administration and keeping it intact? By, in fact, mitigating some of Trump's worst impulses, did she actually allow the administration to survive longer than it should have and even perhaps legitimized it to some extent. At the very least, by concealing some of the worst practices and aspects of the administration. But
1: that's, that's the key point, though, that the concealing, that was the thing that she found most problematic. She was like, if the public doesn't know how bad... This administration is because I'm preventing the bad things from getting out there. Then, then perhaps I'm doing them a disservice for when they go to vote. Right? I think that was that was like the key insight that she that she felt around, or 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 ambivalence, I guess, that she felt around her decision.
0: And to be honest, I'm I'm still thinking about this. I have no clue what I would have done.
1: Yeah, let our let our listeners decide what they think.
0: And then we went to the main topic, which was the Supreme Court and the court's role in American public discourse, specifically when it comes to the culture war. Because there's so much culture war energy and panic injected into legal debates these days because everybody's expecting the Supreme Court to solve all their culture war problems, whether it's abortions or guns or gay wedding cakes. And with lawmakers completely abdicating their responsibility to legislate In favor of performance, as we've discussed in several other conversations, like our talk with Yuval Levine or Martin Guri, the Supreme Court becomes the eschatological site of culture war Armageddon. And that's not good.
1: Yeah. And for me, as someone who doesn't doesn't follow Supreme Court news, it was very fascinating for me to get the like the backstory of each of the justices, the kind of p- politics, I guess, of their their interactions and the histories. It's like very much like office politics of like the why certain areas of their ideal ideologies have come out in response to the group dynamic that as the, as the court has changed over the years. And that I found very interesting and I did I did not know about
0: And she has a theory about the makeup of the court that doesn't quite conform with the way that the media usually covers it, where you'll normally hear about the six to three split, the sharp conservative bent. And she's saying, wait, 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 there's actually something a lot more interesting and complicated happening here, doctrinally. So it was an absolute pleasure talking to her, but I should apologize because I'm editing this from Jerusalem. And it's not my normal station And so I've encountered some technical difficulties That I did not anticipate And it might manifest In some unexpected ways During the, the recording So I apologize in advance
1: There was a lawnmower or tutu But we, we, we went right past that That didn't really matter Or,
0: or rather it went past a lot of cicadas
1: <laughs> Yeah, a lopped off cicada maybe.
0: So it's great to be back from vacation Well, maybe not great It's
1: okay It's okay
0: to be back from vacation <laughs> please follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcast. Share it with your friends and enemies. Spread the word. And if you want to chat with us, we are Uncertain Pod on the social media sometimes. And most importantly, if you want to help us, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This really, really helps us reach more people. So thank you. And with that,
1: Sarah Isker.
2: Have you ordered the new uh, biography of Justice Harlan?
0: No. Uh,
2: It's called The Great Dissenter. If you are not super in, like, if you have not already read three biographies of Justice Harlan (laughs) and you remotely like legal history slash American history slash the hero of a story that you didn't know. Um, You need to get this I'm sold. It's um, uh, Peter Canelos. I always butcher his last name, but he's a Politico uh, reporter or Mm. editor. Um, And I mean, Justice Harlan, he's a slave owner with a black half brother that he grew up adoring. And he becomes the lone dissenter on race. (gasps) through the whole reconstruction era. And his dissents are now like he's a man out of time. And it's crazy. Cause you know, you think like, oh, sure, like I would have been against slavery. Maybe you would have, maybe you wouldn't have. But you wouldn't have been Justice Harlan. Like mm. to be so separate from your own culture and time and era, I think is so rare. Like I have, I don't read his dissents and think, like, yeah, yeah, I probably would have written that. Like, no, clearly I would not have. <laughs>
0: That actually already like, rings at something that I, I want to get in later, and just how, how, and, 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 and it didn't even occur to me to, to frame it in that context. But I was thinking about the impact of culture on, you, know, broad culture and public moods on court decisions and trends in the courts, as opposed to, you know, internal doctrinal debates about legal theory. How, how do you see this relationship playing out right now?
2: Uh, I think that there's uh, a lot of things that are misreported about the Supreme Court, but about law in general. And I think that uh, one cuts on one side and one cuts on the other. On the one hand, I think there's way too many headlines that put cases always in a political context, even when they're not. And I find that very frustrating. It politicizes the court unfairly. On the other hand, I think it is also hilarious when we treat justices as if they are sitting on Olympus in robes and that they don't live in the communities that they live in and go to the Little League games and chit chat with people over brunch. Of course they do. they are people here too. And so they're absolutely affected by the culture of our time. They're people too. Um, They have likes, they have dislikes, they have pet peeves. And it's um, like, there's a sub genre to that, which is Uh, Bad facts make bad law and good facts make good law. You know, you have an incredibly sympathetic defendant sometimes. And sometimes it actually makes um, bad law in in a way. So I'm thinking now of the Pruneyard case. This is a case from the 1980s, uh, early 80s. It arises from 1975. A group of high school students go to their local mall And they have a petition and they want signatures for this petition. The petition is um, about Israel. They're mad about something related to Israel. I don't even remember what. So they want their sort of BDS version in 1975 for this um, petition they want to send to the UN, I believe. So they go to the mall and the mall asks them to leave. And the question was, do they have like this First Amendment right at a mall that's privately owned? And the thing about this case is it's so like they're high school students and they're getting civically engaged and it's a petition, like sort of the quintessential first amendment, right? And so the court in like, I I might get the year slightly wrong, 82 or so. um, By the time it makes its way all the way up holds that, yes, they have a first amendment, right. To be at a private mall asking for signatures. And basically all of our first amendment jurisprudence since then is like, no, that's not. That can't be the rule. Like, what if they weren't high school students? What if they were white supremacists uh, trying to like stand on their soapbox talking about how you know something about the Jews? Um, clearly, the mall has a right to kick them out then. And yet, you have Prunyard. I I tell this whole story because those justices lived in their communities too. They were incredibly sympathetic to these high school students just trying to get engaged. And it made some bad law that we're dealing with the repercussions with now in a lot of cases that are going to come before the court in the next couple of years. Um, And I look back on that case as one of the quintessential examples of um, good facts can make bad law.
0: (laughs) Where do you see this tension playing out in in the immediate future?
2: Yeah. So we're about to have a lot of cases about uh, whether private actors have to create a space for speech they disagree with, the most obvious is social media, right? This idea that uh, maybe Twitter or Facebook have to allow speakers on their platform to say whatever they want. um, And as long as it's not violent or uh, pornographic, that they have to serve as a platform. And in some ways, Facebook is a lot like them all. And so people look back on that Pruneyard case and think, well, that's like in legal terms, like about as good of analogy as you're going to get from 1982 to 2021. Um, and I would argue that, in fact, Pruneyard is basically cabined entirely to its very sympathetic facts and that absolutely a private actor, um, a private actor's free speech, First Amendment rights, trump the person who wants to come on to their business. Now, there is a little bit of a nuance to Pruneyard where you could argue that actually you can keep Pruneyard as a precedent Because it did acknowledge the fact that if the mall thought they were going to lose business because of whoever was speaking in the mall, that maybe then they could kick them out. So in my KKK example, they probably could kick them out by arguing that it was going to hurt their business to have, you know, a bunch of guys in white robes trouncing around playing dress up in a way that the high school students weren't. I actually still think that's not correct, in any other first amendment case that we've ever seen. Um, But you see where like, this is gonna be really tense when it comes to Facebook, Twitter, social media, and these conversations we're having, this like term that we keep throwing, like section 230. Um, I would love a realistic poll of how many people have ever read section 230. Uh, And anyone who says they understand it, like is lying, frankly, it's all a lie.
0: I, I'm I'm tempted to already use this as a as a as a jump to one of my questions about Section 230, but in, don't do um,
1: it. Don't take the bait.
0: But we should introduce you. Hey, Sarah, thank you for joining us.
1: <laughs> Diving right in. Uh,
0: so, uh, our listeners might know you as the co-host of Advisory Opinions podcast with David French, who we've had as a guest before, and as Queen Regent of the the Dispatch podcast. But While you may consider this the epitome of your career, you've had... uh uh, quite a, a trail before it. So how, how did you get here? How did you climb up this Olympus?
2: It's a long and winding story. Uh, so I grew up in pretty rural part of Texas. I did not know that humans lived in cold temperatures. And so I made the mistake of going to Northwestern, uh, near Chicago for four years without socks. I literally lived without socks for four years and it was, a, I don't know how I still have 10 toes. Um, I actually went as a math and chemistry major, and then uh, the two thousand election happened, and I just became obsessed with this idea of um of politics and how how like in the balance this stuff all was so i that's what I decided to to do with life career I don't know, at least those four years in college. Um, so I pursued campaigns for a long time.
0: well but what was it what was it that engaged you? exactly
2: I mean if I'm being really honest, it's like the combination of the West Wing and SNL skits from that year. (laughs) Remember the lockbox skit? (laughs) And nobody knows where the key is, just Tipper and me. I mean, like the way that our culture engaged with politics, and that was before the recount. Um, And then you have this recount and it felt like, I don't know, I, I, I was very into American history but it always felt preordained. And I guess what really struck me about the 2000 election is how it really could have gone either way. And again, like pre-recount. So then the recount happens and you're like, whoa. Um,
0: When you say preordain, I'm interested in what you're thinking. Preordaining the sense that every election, you kind of know where the path is going or even more deeply in the sense that the system is basically stagnant. What has been will
2: always be. No, I think I mean something much... (laughs) Um, much more Calvinist, uh, <laughs> that, like the American experiment was always going to play out the way that it did. Mm. We were always going to have a civil war the second the Declaration of Independence was signed. Um, Reconstruction was always going to fail. It had to fail, because we always had to be um, fulfilling that promise of becoming a more perfect union. And so when you're studying history, sometimes you can, have this mistaken belief. Uh, it's like the opposite of the great man theory right, of history. Right. The It was always going to be this way. And right. so all of the important things that happened, Lincoln's assassination or anything else, like how could it be any other way? And you don't feel a lot of- um,
0: Keep bending the arc of the moral universe.
2: That's right. Uh, and so there's not a lot of self-reliance in that philosophy, right? Because you don't matter. None of us particularly matter because it's going to turn out this way. And what struck me about 2000 was like, wow, it sure doesn't feel that way as you're watching history play out. Hmm.
0: You know, this is something that I've been struggling with myself because I realized I I thought that I have eschewed many r- religious and cultural biases that I grew up with. And and I thought that I have a very, you know, sober approach to history, whatever that means. I mean, I guess even, even just... Cl- this definition alone shows how still biased I am in my uh, cultural presumptions, but...
2: This is the opposite of drunk history. It's sober history.
0: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's not no, just... History just not as fun, but with a lot less people throwing up in the end of the episodes. Then I started thinking, I think it, it was similar to your, pro, at least somewhat to your process in, in 2016 and, and throughout the, the the Trump years, just realizing how captured I was by this concept of progress without even understanding it like you you call it preordained i would see it as progress because obviously new technology will make a better world obviously um um we are all converging on a single understanding of what it means to be in an open more more free society and that arc of the moral universe just keeps keeps bending in the right direction obviously it's just a matter of tweaking now we're at the end of history and then you realize, no, 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 People, people could very happily adopt, I don't know, um, um, uh, types of regimes that I thought until, until th- th- this past five years have been completely forgone or just like left to decline. But it was just a matter of time until everybody around the world would catch up with, with this wonderful um, um, vision of democracy, shining city on a hill, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's difficult to come to terms with this.
2: It's the arrogance of the present The arrogance of the present. Put ourselves in the position of what it felt like in 1932 to live in the United States and watch what was happening in Germany, or for that matter, to live in Germany. Um, Because to us, it feels preordained or uh, uh, inevitable that we were always going to win World War II. So, in some ways, we think World War II was sort of a net positive, right? Like uh, lots of good things came out of it. But when you're sitting in 1932, There's no way you think that we're bending towards progress and arc toward good. Uh, Nope, 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 nope. I mean, Hitler was never elected to anything technically. But at the same time, you have to think during those elections, uh, you know, he comes in second, then he's appointed, then there's, you know, the fire at the Reichstag. Like, um, if you're living through all of that, it does not feel inevitable how that story is going to end.
0: So you have this moment where you realize that things aren't preordained. People have agency over their politics.
1: Slash, they're at the will of whatever fates or recounts happen. Like two Uh, sides of that.
0: The furies, the furies of the recount.
1: Um. So so that's what I threw myself
2: into. You know, campaigns. Whether my personality grew into loving campaigns or I was always going to love campaigns, there is something about working. For 18 months, you know, 18, 20 hour days and not eating, not seeing your friends, uh, like being sort of the worst version of yourself in some ways. And then having six months of unemployment and terror that you're never going to work again. It's sort of like being an anaconda in my mind. Um, You know, it's it's like real feast or famine. But as a lifestyle, I have never had a job that lasted more than two years in my entire life. And I am almost 40. Um, So... Anyway, you said said all that as if it it wasn't
1: good, good, but you also had like an undercurrent of like, you wouldn't have had it any other way. Like this was the lifestyle you wanted.
2: (laughs) Oh, I loved it. But when I talk to like college students and they're like, this seems cool. She's on TV and Mm. like (laughs) has had all these jobs. I have to, I try to be very serious with them that, um, you know, I've missed all of my friends' birthday parties. If they fall within that 18 months and weddings and everything else. And you can't, you're going to be miserable if you sit there and you're like thinking about the wedding that you're missing. Like no, part of it is like you're happy to miss the wedding because you're doing something that to you is more fun if you're willing to admit that to yourself. Mm-hmm. And then the unemployment and the anxiety that comes with that, like it's a very specific personality type that can thrive in this environment. I happen to be one, but I don't think it makes you a bad person if you're like, "You know what? That that doesn't sound great."
0: How does the concentration of this personality type in the world of campaigning Affect the world of campaigning.
2: Oh, right! It's totally self-selecting, and so you end up um, the same way that law, I think, has uh, a higher incidence of alcoholism and mm-hmm. uh, and drug abuse and depression. I think campaigning, first of all, I <laughs> percentage-wise in terms of people who still smoke cigarettes, mm-hmm. has to be one of the top professions for percentage of cigarette smoking. I have never smoked a cigarette. But, like, I'm the only one. <laughs> um, it's, it's a bit of a hard-charging lifestyle. Marriages don't succeed very often in campaign world. Um, you have more in common with the people who are on the other team than you do with people who are outside your profession, hmm. which I think a lot of people from the outside don't understand. I have a lot more in common with my Democratic counterparts than I do with people, for instance, who work in policy. So that's like still in the political realm. Like you work in government policy or on the Hill. I have very little in common with you, even if you're on my team, quote unquote, um, because you don't know what it's like to to live out of a suitcase, a checked, like a non-checked bag, a carry-on suitcase for three weeks where you go buy underwear at Target with a dude you just met three days ago. Uh, And stay in a hotel where there's like a mirror on the ceiling and the bathtub is next to the bed. Like that's a lifestyle choice.
0: That's the, that's the, the, the military reality of a, of the campaigner.
2: Yeah. It's awesome. And like, you wouldn't have it. Like I, I was in a uh, motel. It was a hotel technically between a strip club and a Chick-fil-A in Tampa reading Cormac McCarthy's the road, you know, for like 30 minutes a night in the bathtub that was next to the bed, it was the weirdest. <laughs> Weird.
0: So so how do you transit from the, the rugged life of a campaigner to Sessions DOJ?
2: Whew. So there's like a, you know, like the very practical answer to that and the philosophical answer. I'll try to give a short version of both. So the practical answer is I had uh, just finished up on Carly Fiorina's campaign. I went to Harvard's IOP. Um, I was deeply concerned about trump winning the white house uh i was stunned when he won i think it's uh, another thing that we do that's really unfair is mock those college students who like cried or needed therapy dogs they were told by adults that the world would end if donald trump won like the country that they knew would end um and that it would never happen and then it happened what do you think 18-year-old's response is going to be and it's really unfair to judge them for the environment that I contributed to creating for them. Uh so mm.
0: how, how do you see yourself responsible for creating that environment?
2: Because I told them it wasn't going to happen.
0: In the sense of in terms of polling in terms or or in terms of just the preordained perception, again, taking over. This is just like, this is not what America is. It's not going to happen. Was it the reality of the numbers that you were looking at that made you say, just, you can, you can be rest assured, or was it just that this, this picture doesn't fit? It can never, I can never see it materializing.
2: So it's funny. I go back and look at some of the notes that I you know, was sketching out during some of the Carly days. And I literally said, I wonder what it felt like in 1932 Germany, but then at the same time, and not acknowledging the possibility that he can win. Because, as you said, right, America doesn't like in my mind, do that, and so it can't happen um, at the same time i'm I'm telling the students that I'm looking at the numbers in Michigan and that they don't make sense. Uh, Hillary Clinton visited Michigan I think the Saturday before the election, but the numbers were saying she was up by like eight points, and I said that something's wrong here. They have internal numbers. You would never, your most valuable asset at that moment is your candidate's time. You would never send your candidate to a plus eight state on the Saturday before the election, which means they think Michigan is a, at most a plus two state and like trending downward. And it's Michigan. And I, I remember like saying all that in class on Monday um, and saying, but look, that being said, you know it still can't happen <laughs> so like i'm i'm arguing against myself in that moment like i know the operative part of my head knows that they're about to lose this race but the american history part of my brain that's now controlling my mouth said it couldn't happen
0: <laughs> and i wonder so i, I remember that moment th- those those days of 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 going to bars watching the debates mm-hmm. When you when you think it was still just fun and games, this is bars in bars in New bars York, in New York yes, ten. bars in New York, and and I remember, and maybe that that's me being you know not raised in in the U.S. and being having a foreigner's perspective. I remember just how the dance would go. Trump would give his quips. Hillary would have her reposts, and people would boo Trump applaud uh hillary and would say she's she just she destroyed him and then you could see like the articles were already being read. you can hear the typing of the huffington post writers like blogging (laughs) hillary eviscerates him and i was just watching did she though like am i missing something like i guess i'm so disconnected with american culture that to me it seems that he's just dominated the debate and i can hear who he was speaking to what he was saying where he was resonating and I couldn't, and, and despite some somebody who was a, a prone Democratic voter, I could, Hillary wasn't wasn't hitting it wasn't hitting any note, and I was like, what am I missing? And I, I, apparently, I didn't miss anything. What was, what was shocking to me was just the amount of people, public figures, dominant voices who apparently couldn't see what was happening, and all that with the dissonance of simultaneously saying this is the most dangerous thing that has ever happened in an American election, and also. This can never happen. So I'm wondering, as somebody who had to deal with the numbers from the, the, the perspective of, of, of people who, who may be in office, as opposed to you know a pseudo-journalistic blog, do you think that these cognitive dissonances were the, the result of fear that this might truly happen? Or just some, some heuristic belief that there's going to be you know, a deus ex machina that's going to bring it, make everything right.
2: Um, so I, that's hard to answer, I guess. No, I don't think it was born out of fear. It was, it was born out of, it just can't happen. It just this won't happen. happen. Um, it's, he was elected, like when they called the election, it was November 9th, which is my birthday. Uh, it's also the day the Berlin wall came down. And, um, and I didn't understand, you know, I wasn't 18. And anyway, my dad wrote me this email uh, that I, I'm an inbox clearer. I, don't, I feel like that's like a people fall into one of two categories. You either have 25,000 emails in your inbox or like three. I'm a threer. When I go to bed at night, I want the fewest number of emails possible. And those emails are to-dos, except for one. And that's an email on November 9th, 2016 that my dad wrote me. Um, you know, sort of trying to help me make sense of what had just happened. Uh, and I think that when you, we look back on that election, we're sometimes a little unfairly hard on ourselves. You have the two most disliked candidates in American history running against each other. And it keeps ping ponging back and forth. When the election is a referendum on Donald Trump, people remember why they dislike him and he's drops in the polls. When the election is a referendum on her. She drops in the polls. Think back to like September 11th. She collapses at the church. It becomes like referendum E on her and she drops in the polls then. So the hot potato is getting passed back and forth. And Jim Comey gave the hot potato to Hillary Clinton in those last few days. Do I think that Jim Comey is the reason that Donald Trump got elected? I think that's a little unfair. Like in law, we have something called proximate cause and but for cause. Um, Like, yeah, like but for that maybe he wouldn't have won. Jim Comey is not why Donald Trump became president. So like people need to, <laughs> McKay Coppins, who wrote the piece kind of daring Trump to run, is not why Trump became president. <laughs> um, there are a lot of factors going on worldwide. No,
0: it's John Stewart's fault.
2: <laughs> it's John Stewart's fault. Now, yeah, yeah, obviously it's just totally John 100% on him. Um, but I do think you have to bear in mind just how so deeply disliked they both were. And you can run I mean, the numbers six ways to Sunday, as I have, I still go back and look at the 2016 numbers sometimes, Um, you know, like late at night, a question will pop into my head. And it is, um, it is a perfect storm.
0: Polling also had issues this time around, right? I I think this was the first thing that we we talked when our interview with David was on November 4th and results were still kind of leaning Trump. And I remember the sinking feeling of, but you said that the polling were right this time. And I think I may have put David just a little bit on the spot because the two of you had just come out with an episode before the election saying how the polls were going to be right this time because lessons were learned and corrections were made. So what's up?
2: Yeah, so they didn't get it right. The difference is that it didn't change the outcome this time and so people are having less of this uh less of a fit hair suit uh wearing bit about the whole thing uh so first let me just say i love that we trust polling less i think it makes for lazy political reporting and so i would love if everyone just decided on their own that polling is totally useless and we shouldn't even look at it anymore, let alone write headlines on it or stories or use it for, you know, every cable news segment.
0: Take John King's magic wall and smash it. Put a sledgehammer through it.
2: The freedom that we will feel after polling. Um, Yeah, so that's all to say, to the extent I'm about to defend polling, (laughs) I would love a world in which we use no polling. Um, So... The theory of the pollsters, when you're looking at fewer than 10% of people you reach out to responding, is that the 10% were no different than the 90% in the ways that were meaningful. Uh, and the problem for them is that they only have to be different by like 2 or 3% for it to take over your whole polling problem. And so it turns out that the 10% that were responding to surveys were meaningfully a little bit different than the 90%, not by a lot. Um, I think that the whole like the phantom Trump thing, the like Trump voters don't answer surveys isn't true in 97% of Trump voters. But if it's true for 3%, that they're 3% more likely to not answer that poll than a Biden voter, your polling is gonna be pretty crappy. Right. And And so it's a little unfair to make it sound like, They're just idiots who can't put together a poll or that they're idiots who think that Trump voters respond to surveys as often as Biden voters. Yeah. 97% of the time they do. Uh, But of course, when you're talking about a close presidential election, 97% ain't good enough. I was actually really interested in the polling around the New York city mayor's race Mm -hmm. uh, and totally decided that I was just not going to pay any attention to the polls because who, I mean, talk about a race that's hard to poll. 5.6 million registered voters in New York City and turnout, which they didn't know what turnout would be. They were like, turnout will be between 600,000 and 1.1 million. Well, that makes a huge difference. If it's 1.1 million people, then you missed 400,000, you know, nearly a third of your electorate when you polled. Um, nevertheless, they got it, you know pretty good for when you're talking about a 10% turnout number, which is way different than a presidential number. So at, at some points I think we should be in awe of how good pollsters are in a really hard environment. And at the same time, stop thinking that they're scientists who are, you know, just adding one plus one. It's not quite that either.
0: So I, I sidetracked us like completely from your <laughs> narrative. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm at fault. That, that, that was the short, practical explanation of how you got to the <laughs> Sessions DOJ.
1: So then, so you're sitting in front of the classroom, you're telling the, t- the, cl- the kids it'll never happen, cut to, it happens, yeah. then what? Cut to, it happens.
2: Um, I get a phone call asking me, you know, the next week, whether I'm interested in joining the administration. And I was very honest. I said, you should probably go back and see all the things that I said about the guy who just won. That being said, I was raised to believe that if you are asked to serve, you have a duty to serve. If you have something to contribute, you have a duty. We want good people in government. We don't just want sycophants um, and toadies. And so I did. Um, And I was very, there's a reason I went to the Department of Justice. I'd worked there twice before. Um, I love, I literally love the building. Like I
0: best reason to work anywhere.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's an incredible building, the artwork in it. If you ever have the chance to take a tour of the department of justice artwork, the uh, chief librarian will give you a tour. Um, Oh my gosh. My heart just sings. It is, uh, you know, built in 1932. So it's all these WPA projects and And the artwork is trying to convey what the rule of law should mean. It's aspirational. It is showing race in the country. It's showing gender in the country. And not in a way that was remotely realistic in 1932. (laughs) Which makes it, to me, more beautiful. That that is not the reality that they were painting. It was the future that they wanted. Um, How great is that for for justice, which... That is sort of how justice works, right? Justice is not a reality, it is an aspiration. Anyway, talk about sidetrack, sorry. I get very poetic about about my favorite building. Um, I also knew the Department of Justice had some independence from the White House and had a responsibility to hold people accountable when necessary. Uh, I thought that I was particularly (laughs) well-suited to defend the 120,000 people who worked there. Maybe I was, maybe I wasn't, you know, the Russia investigation happens and it was my job every day to go out there. And at least in my view, um, be the front line as literally on both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. So DOJ is at ninth in constitution. Um, So the White House is to our right and the Hill is to our left. I mean, every single day we are taking sniper fire from both directions. And my job was to sit there and like repel every advance to protect the people behind me who were actually doing the work so that they didn't have to worry that they were about to be Mm -hmm. targeted. And that sounds like I'm being overly dramatic, but it was not. I mean, they were trying to pick off members of the special counsel's team, career folks within the department, um, make examples of them, try to get them fired. and. I loved being the defender of that team. And, um, that was an honor. Now I wrote this (laughs) op-ed in the Washington post because at the end, so the white house tried to fire me like four times. Um, in the end, they were obviously successful. Uh, I was relieved of my duties, uh, the day after Sessions, was fired. Um, I was always sort of uncomfortable after that with the concept of we need good people in government. Mm. And I couldn't really figure out why. And so it took me, you know, like 18 months to write this thousand word op-ed to try to explore my own feelings on why I was uncomfortable with that notion. Because, like, why, right? Like, we it still makes sense to me. And what I decided was that at the same, for all the reasons that you want good people in government, it also obscures what the principal wanted. Every time that we told Donald Trump that something was illegal, that he shouldn't do something, that he couldn't do something, voters were not getting a true sense of what a Donald Trump presidency meant. And you fast forward to 2020, I published the op-ed in December, by the way, of 2020, which will become important here in a second, but you fast forward to 2020 and he gets, you know, whatever it was, 74 million votes. I feel like I contributed to misleading at least some of those 74 million people about what that presidency would have looked like. Now the problem is fast forward a week after I published the op-ed, I published it on Christmas Eve and you have January 6th. and thank God we still had some good people in government who refused to go along with that. What if we hadn't? That was, so, the,
0: that was my next question. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So like I, I, my thesis was at both bolstered because that's who Donald Trump would have been for four years without good people in government. Um, and I think then perhaps he would have been more repudiated at the ballot box. At the same time, then you have January 6th where like, the institutions of American government became so vitally important. The,
0: mm-hmm. the depressing question that, that that is ringing in my head when I heard you speak, <laughs> would it have mattered if they had a bigger, a clearer, more transparent picture of who right. the man is? Right. Because don't we? Did, didn't we know from early days and just despite all the things that were prevented the things that got out gave us a very clear picture of who the man is what his ethics are his understand his approach to power
2: so i don't think so um yes there is some percentage of voters who would have voted for him in all of his flaws But there were a lot of voters out there who said, you know what? I don't like Donald Trump. I don't like the tweets. I don't like his attitude. I don't like the stuff he says. But I like a lot of what his administration has done. They've done deeply conservative things at the Department of Justice, at the Department of Education, the Pentagon, whatever. Um, I feel like I misled them. That wasn't Donald Trump doing those things. That was all the people who just slotted themselves into these slots because he didn't know not to put us there in a lot of ways um two there's a a small but mighty contingent of what i call the butt gorsuch
0: voters
2: (laughs) they didn't like anything about what donald trump did they saw his authoritarian tendencies but gorsuch like but getting those seats on the supreme court they felt like was their only bulwark against authoritarianism coming from the left Mm. um i don't know that Um, Yeah, I mean, I think January 6th was a real problem for the Butt Gorsuch voters. So on the one hand, they got three Supreme Court justices. Wow. And on the other hand, you had, um, you know, a president who, in my opinion, tried to topple the American government.
0: Are are you scared that if he's in power again, that this time he'll know not to put you and your likes in, in office? And the damage can be more permanent?
2: I do not contemplate a world in which he's become president again, because that's the least of our problems. Like, no, of course it, it will be so different than the four years of his presidency. I think it is hard for us, hard for me to fully convey how different that will be. Um, I think that if he came into power again, um, that actually, I don't think he'd relinquish that power again.
0: And are you worried about, I mean, I I, I listened to you talk about, so I do know that you you, you are worried, but to what extent are you worried that the the, the playbook of the past four years from how easy it is to hollow out institutions and in the past year, seeing how easy it is to sow doubts in elections, are you afraid that this is something that could be replicated with or without him?
2: Yeah, so bearing in mind everything I just said about 2016 and what I said before 2016. No, mm-hmm. I'm not worried at all. I think our institutions, <laughs> um, proved incredibly strong over the course of four years on January 6th. I think that there's going to be a lot of books that come out about last summer and yeah. just how strong our institutions were in ways that, uh, a lot of folks didn't see really the department of justice and the Pentagon in particular, uh, incredibly important to maintaining uh all the things that we hold dear um i do not think it's easy to manipulate elections i think it is easy to convince people that it's easy to manipulate elections that is a danger actually manipulating elections pretty hard
1: um i'd like to ask you some questions about the Supreme Court, if we can. I know we, we spent, we were meant to talk about that for a lot more, but everything else was just so interesting that we kind of just kept on teasing it out. But I mean, so I am. I do not follow law as closely as Adam does. And so uh, my perception of what's going on in the Supreme Court, having vaguely paid attention, is that it seems to be really conservative at the moment so but to, with talking from Adam he, he's kind of explained that from your perspective there's more of a 3-3-3 three, three, three kind of division would you mind on un, 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 unpacking if you will <laughs> how that how that works
2: so first of all um I believe 10 percent of Americans think Judge Judy's on the court so
1: okay I'm, I'm a little bit better than that that's
2: right so I just want to <laughs> be clear like no oh, mockery here so with the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett Everyone thought that this was a 6-3 court that, like, why even pay attention to the Supreme Court anymore because conservatives now will run the table. I think that was always an incredibly naive view of how the Supreme Court works. Um, A, most cases actually do not fall on a linear conservative to liberal axis. Um, It's at least two axes, (laughs) uh, if not sort of three-dimensional. And the reason that I sort of prophesied the three 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 court is because, so fine, you have Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor. But first of all, let's break them apart a little. Kagan's number one thing is precedent. She wants to protect the court's precedent. She's also the most sort of politically savvy. And I don't mean partisan. I don't mean R or D savvy. I mean, politically, like the way someone's really good at office politics. She is all about... um, Winning people over to her opinion because she joined the court in the minority. She was always going to be sort of in that liberal minority. I think she planned for it. Um, It was a brilliant move by the Obama administration to put Kagan on the court. I also happen to think she's so smart, one of the best writer on the court right now. Um, Okay, so you got her. Breyer's all about. (laughs) You know, Breyer was on the court as the junior justice for eleven years. Uh, The junior justice is the one who has to answer the door at the conference. Um, he loves telling like, that story. Yeah. I mean, it's like for 11 years. And then even when he's not the junior justice, he's still the junior justice on the liberal side. He's always going to be in Ginsburg's shadow. He is now just coming into his own sunlight and blooming like a beautiful little blooming blossom, like an awesome blossom. Uh and so you have sort of a whole new Justice Breyer in a lot of ways. Justice Breyer sort of known for his six-part balancing test and metaphors that run wild, um, you know. But imagine if the defendant were a baguette and the <laughs> prosecution were a tiger. Um, <laughs> and then you have Sotomayor, who's by far the most left-leaning of, of the three, but, like, also the most um, not partisan, meaning Democrat, but partisan meaning like that kind of political. She's the most, I think, the, the most justice that you can put on that access of just conservative to liberal on the liberal side. So you always knew that you were going to end up with Kagan and Breyer joining with others when Sotomayor, Sotomayor wouldn't. But you're sort of looking at those three in one bucket. Okay, let's skip over to the other bucket. We're going to skip the middle bucket. Um, Thomas, uh, as a justice, has been on the longest and, you know, known for not asking questions at argument, you never heard his voice, but also he wasn't writing. I mean, compared to this term, that guy's just churning out those concurrences and dissents and feelings. Um, and he's asking questions at every argument because of the way oral argument has been restructured to be telephonic. He's the first one after the chief to ask questions. And he asked questions every single time. We're hearing so much more. Wait,
1: sorry, what Clarence does that mean Thomas. to be telephonic? What, what's, what does that mean?
2: Yeah, so uh, the Supreme Court arguments in general are in person. You, there's no television cameras. There's no live audio that you can listen to. And it's this free-for-all where the justices just pummel the advocate and they can talk over each other. And the only real rule is that a senior justice, a more senior justice can talk over a more junior justice and the junior justice has to yield. It's a mess. I find it really unhelpful as you think about how to like work your way through a case. I've, I have not liked the oral arguments now they're telephonic. And so in order to impose order, you really couldn't have that free for all on the telephone. And so the chief's new rule is that you just go in order. Uh, You start with the chief justice and then you go to Thomas uh, and then you go to Breyer and you go all the way down for one side And then you start over with the next side and you start with the chief and you go all the way down and it's great. I'm so sorry. Um, they're mowing my lawn. I did not know that was happening today (laughs) and we're done. Okay. At least by the part next to the door. (laughs) I asked them not to come last week because, um, I was worried about all my poor little cicadas and I wanted them to thrive for their last few days. And I was worried they'd just be down there getting crushed in the (laughs) blades. So, but now I think they're all dead. Um, (laughs) Their bodies have become fertilizer. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so the new arguments, I think, have actually changed Justice Thomas a little bit in a fun way. Also, the death of Justice Scalia. He's no longer sort of in the wake of Scalia drafting behind him um, in the biking sense. Um, then you have Justice Alito boy has he come into his own after the death of justice scalia he was always like kind of quiet and now all of a sudden we have very spicy aggressive opinions justice alito definitely sort of leading that bucket
0: so so what what is it about about the absence of scalia that that made them jump in is that is that a personality thing is it just like a a matter of you know uh character's destiny Like Now now Scalia is gone, people are more comfortable being themselves because they're not in the shadow of this towering figure?
2: I think Justice Scalia and Justice Kennedy leaving the court in close proximity has wildly changed the personalities on the court. I think it's not just his personality, Justice Scalia's, though I think that's part of it. He had an imposing personality. Uh, Everyone loved him, all of that stuff. But also remember, he's the father of originalism, the philosophical legal school of thought that even Justice Kagan has adopted. So when Justice Scalia says, here's what an originalist thinks, you know it's gonna be a little hard for anyone else to be like, well, actually, and he's like, really? Really, did you invent originalism? (laughs) No, I didn't think so. But now you see the court really grappling with that. You have Justice Gorsuch saying, no, this is what the text says, you have Alito saying, absolutely not, you buffoon. Uh, and then you have Kagan saying, what? I thought we were doing originalism. Um, and so they're really grappling with what the next generation of textualism and originalism means, which is really fun to watch. OK, so the last one in that, that far that right bucket is Justice Gorsuch. What's fascinating about that is that Justice Gorsuch, you know, is often in that right bucket. Or he's writing the Bostock opinion, saying that Title VII includes gender identity and I was actually, uh, sexual I, I, orientation.
0: I was really hoping you were going to bring this case up. I love it. If only for Vanessa's sake, to, to, to enjoy the difference between originalism and textualism, which is like, you hear those words so often, and even though the meaning is in literally the word, a close textualist reading of the name could give you an idea of what they are. Still, can you, can you explain what happened there? And why is the right so, so mad at Justice Gorsuch?
2: All right. So we have a few intraconservative fights going on. Originalism, according to Justice Scalia, um, is sort of what the original public meaning of a phrase would have been at the time of the founding. Um, textualism is what the words mean. Now. I know that can overlap, right? So a te- an originalist is always a textualist, but a textualist is not always an originalist. Gorsuch is more a pure textualist. Alito is more of a pure originalist. And Alito accuses Gorsuch of being a literalist, meaning you take the text totally off its moorings with no context whatsoever. Well, it says the word sex. Sex can mean gender identity. Therefore, Title VII now includes all this stuff that clearly Congress never intended when they wrote the statute, according to Justice Alito. And Justice Gorsuch says, yeah, I agree. They did not mean to include gender identity in the 70s when they passed Title VII. Unfortunately for them, what they wrote does include gender identity. And that's the difference between a textualist and originalist. So you can end up with deeply conservative reasoning from Justice Gorsuch that leads to wildly liberal results. And so if all you do is write about the Supreme Court with that political lens, you're very confused. But if you're following these intra-family feuds that are happening within the conservative movement, I mean, you're getting your popcorn out and you're like, woo, say more.
0: (laughs) And it's it's one of those nice cases when you can actually point to judicial doctrine surmounting you know culture war preferences.
2: And you're seeing that more and more. And so I talked about Justice Scalia leaving. That really affected that bucket of three. The Alito, Gorsuch, Thomas bucket. But let's talk about the middle three. That's Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Barrett. I mean, I cannot emphasize how much Justice Kennedy leaving the court has, I think, scrambled the politics with a small P of the court all over the place. Um, Justice Kennedy was always the swing vote for like two decades more, you know, justice O'Connor to some extent, but she was um, uh, you know, even then like he still was a major swing vote voice. Uh, And so the court aligns, in a lot of ways around that. And everyone gets kind of used to their position. Think about any birth order conversation you have with your family. You get used to playing the middle child, you're know, you always going to be the middle child at family dinner. That's what sort of happened on the court with Justice Kennedy there. You also had the politics of the court where everyone knew they always had to be playing for Kennedy if they wanted their way. And so it sort of turned into a team sport. (laughs) four on one dodgeball team, four on the other dodgeball team. And then Kennedy in the middle, just getting pegged with balls. So he leaves the court. Well, for a brief moment, the chief became both the chief justice and the swing vote. I actually really enjoyed that to some extent. Um, I don't think the chief enjoyed it. And uh, definitely the other justices did not appreciate the chief as both chief and swing justice. With the addition of Kavanaugh and Barrett,
0: did they see it as some sort of betrayal from Roberts?
2: You know, Roberts' original sin, if you will, was the 2012 NFIB versus Sibelius case upholding Obamacare um, in sort of a convoluted way. It wasn't even that he upheld it. It was how he upheld it. Uh, as, as one person sort of steeped in his confirmation in the conservative movement told me, um, it was the first time that we'd been betrayed by one of our own, by someone who looked like one of us. Um, And boy does he right He looks literally looks like he was created In a federalist society lab Um, And then he turns out to care a lot more about the institution Than about the conservative movement Or originalism or textualism If it's going to undermine the credibility of the court He wants nothing to do with it And your originalism can go jump off a bridge That Upsets people
0: And can you explain exactly how in his mind That would have Injured the legitimacy of the court. I should give it not necessarily in this particular case, but to give a broad picture for people who are not necessarily as plugged into Supreme court intrigue.
2: Yeah. So let's use the Obamacare case because I think it's the first time that he does it. Not the last, obviously. Um, But I think it set off a whole series of events. So uh, there's a lawsuit about the individual mandate heading in to the 2012 presidential election. And Obama repeatedly says that if the court strikes down the individual mandate, thereby destroying his signature piece of legislation, and now, by the way, he does not have Congress anymore. He cannot pass another big piece of legislation. He says he's going to run against the court in 2012. He's going to turn them in uh, to the number one issue and expose them for the political branch that they are. Well, when you look at the sort of popularity and trust in institutions like Gallup poll or whatever over time, Congress is like at 12%. The court is one of the most, if not the most trusted sort of government institutions, Uh, police officers, firefighters usually beat them, members of the military often beat them, but like that's not quite the same to me. Um, And I think for Justice Roberts, maintaining the rule of law means maintaining the reputation of the court. And its legitimacy in the eyes of the public. And sometimes, therefore, in that logic, the rule of law has to bend to the legitimacy of the court. Now, his detractors would say, then it's not the rule of law anymore. That's not justice being done. You are politicizing the court by trying to not politicize the court. And I think there's good evidence that that's exactly what's happened. But I think if you don't take seriously what the chief justice is trying to do, that you've missed how hard that job really is and what it would mean if Obama had run against the court in 2012, like failure of imagination, if you don't think that's a tough um, debate on both sides. So, So that's the position of the chief when he's the swing vote there for like one term, like half a term. It is really fun to watch for someone like me. But then you get Kavanaugh and Barrett joining. And now the three of them are the swing vote together. And oftentimes um, it's not all three of them. You may pick off two. Sometimes it's the three and it makes it way, way more interesting, way less uh, five, four decisions. You're going to see very, very few five, four decisions, I think, moving forward from the court. Um, a lot more seven, two, eight, one. You know, so far, I think we've only seen 163 with the alignment, you know, the, the six Republican appointees versus the three Democratic appointees uh, in any of the major cases this term. And it was on the right of union representatives to enter, you know, private property to like, you know, go rah rah union stuff. Uh, there was a California law mandating that they could. There was a lawsuit about whether that was then the government sort of taking property from the farmers in this case. That was a 6-3 alignment. But again, if you think of them as the swing vote, as the three justice swing vote, you know, it changes how you view even the 6-3 decisions.
0: And what for them, for the swinging three, are the, the main issues at stake?
2: They all care about the legitimacy of the court, though not to the extent that the chief justice does. They're very much looking forward all the time of how this case will affect the next case and not just the law that's being made, but winning over the fellow justices will be harder if you write some really aggressive dissent or something about like what a moron Justice Breyer is. Well, it's got a little hard to go knock on his door the next day and go, hey, do you want to join my majority opinion in this other case? Um, So there's that aspect to it. I also think that um, overall, they want the smallest outcomes as possible. So, the Supreme Court in any given case could sort of have these broad sweeping statements of what the law is moving forward. You're going to see fewer and fewer of those. You're going to see much more like, okay, well, with these specific facts and this specific defendant or plaintiff, um, here's how this case is going to come out. But you know what? We're not really going to give you any guidance moving forward on like how big a decision this is. You know, taking the angry cheerleader case, which is my favorite case from the term. This is a case where a uh, high school student doesn't make JV cheerleading, goes home real angry that night, gets on Snapchat, and um, she uses the full term. I will not out of uh, respect for your audience, I suppose. um, F cheerleading, F school, F whatever. Uh, middle fingers up and she gets suspended from the cheerleading squad. And the question is uh, the schools have a right to restrict speech when you're at school. Do they have the right to restrict your speech to punish you for your speech when you're not at school? That's like sort of a simplistic way of putting it, but that was the question. And the court today said, It's hard to have a bright line rule about this. Look, in this case, no, they can't punish her speech. It wasn't disruptive, you know, F cheerleading, like whatever. That's adorable. Um, But, like, there could be examples where you can suspend them. And so we'll just have to see how those cases play out. XOXO, the three swing votes, you know? (laughs) Um, And you're going to see more of those. You know, they could have had. I wanted the case to come out that absolutely not. You know, let's think of this as like four different um, types of speech uh, on school grounds talking about school business. Okay, fine. I even I think that the school can probably police that on school grounds not talking about school business. You know, you wear a um, "F the draft" T-shirt to school. Can they punish you for that? I don't think so, but they can according to the Supreme Court. Okay, so then you've got. Off school, related to school. That's what this was, right? She's talking about cheerleading. Uh, And then you've got off school, not related to school. Surely the most protected speech that students could have. I wanted them to say, like, if you're not on school grounds, the school has no authority to punish that speech. Whatsoever. Whatsoever. There are criminal um, things that can happen, like just like you or I. It doesn't matter if you're a teenager. If you threaten someone at school, if you are harassing someone, bullying someone, stalking someone we have laws about that criminal laws go after them for that but this idea that school administrators who have no real training in the first amendment and are state actors can punish you and by the way you know if you're at a private school of course they can punish you because you have consented to having your first amendment rights curtailed when you go to a public school you're not consenting to that and and by the way justice alito is like yes you are No, 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 because you are required to go to school. If school was just like a fun choice that you got to make, okay, that'd be interesting. Or if we had only charter schools where you could pick which school you go to, but they're public, you know, they're technically paid for by the state, even if they're privately run. um, Okay, I'll think through that. You're mandated to go to public school or some school. And if your parents can't avoid private school or to homeschool you, you got to go to public school. And you don't get a choice of which school you go to. How possibly then could you have waived your First Amendment rights by showing up that day? You're forced to be there, Um, let alone, by the way, off campus. Oh, my God. I mean, maybe I was um, just particularly scarred by my high school experience and how much they thought they could control our speech at the time. Uh, But look, the other argument, the other side of the argument is schools have to maintain discipline to establish any sort of educational environment. And sometimes off-campus speech, especially on social media, regardless of what it's about, will disrupt the school. I just don't find that persuasive, but that's the other argument. But anyway, they made no bright line rules. They didn't discuss sort of my four categories of speech and say, here's where the school's power is at its zenith. Here's where it's at its nadir. Instead, it's like, case by case. Boy, this stuff's hard.
0: (laughs) And what... What, like why is that 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 the they're shying away from a more sweeping decision do you think is it, I think it, it
2: goes back to that institutionalism mm-hmm. It's harder to write those very political headlines. It's harder to turn the court into a political punching bag in an election year if they're deciding small ball. That being said, this term had cases that lent themselves more to that next term
0: it's going to have a hell of a lot more
2: it's going to be a lot harder, so you've got. The first real test of uh, Roe, uh, Roe v. Wade, Uh, you've got a gun rights case. You will probably have a case on affirmative action that'll be like the affirmative action test case at this point of whether schools can consider race uh, or whether these schools can discriminate against Asian American students. You will not find a reporter in the country that will write about the outcome of those cases in the headline in anything other than political terms, in what we would consider political terms. It will affect the legitimacy of the court. And by the way, Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett know it. Now, what's really interesting to think about is it takes four justices to take a case. So, who were the four justices who took that case to then force the hand? of, frankly, the other two justices in that swing bucket, my guess has been that Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Barrett agreed to take the abortion case to force Kavanaugh and Roberts to pick a side.
0: Any intuition as to where it's going to land? Obviously, we didn't have any hearings yet, so this is reading the tea leaves of the tea leaves. But just based on court makeup, do you have any intuition? Any hunch?
2: So I think that the... On the gun case, for instance, uh, in two thousand eight, the court held you have an individual right to keep a gun. The question in this case is whether you have a right to bear that gun outside your home. I think they will find that you do. That of course, the state can restrict that right, but that you have some floor right to to carry your gun outside your home, which basically New York has said you don't. The abortion case is much tougher. Because there actually aren't that many people in the legal community who defend Roe. Legally speaking, Roe is kind of a hot dumpster fire of an opinion. Um, Now, it doesn't really matter because you fast forward to Casey in 1992, which we always talk about Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade, for the most part, doesn't matter except that it said you have a constitutional right to have an abortion. That's it. Casey was the one, though, that laid out. Um, you know, the state cannot uh, put an undue burden on that right. And so then we've been arguing about what an undue burden is for the last forever. This is about a 15-week ban. So you could not have an abortion after 15 weeks in Mississippi if this law is upheld. Uh, You don't really need to get to Roe, but also if you did get rid of Roe, you know, that will obviously, like people's heads will explode, but only for lack of understanding what came after it and what the actual state of the law is. Um, What's far more likely is that you're going to have a change in the Casey test that what an undue burden is, or maybe we're going to get rid of that language altogether. Something about Casey is going to change. I don't know whether they're going to uphold the 15 week ban or not. Abortion jurisprudence though, will change no matter what, whether they uphold it. I don't think they're just going to say, Oh, we strike down the 15 week ban, no change, all good. See you later.
0: So that actually takes us to the real big question. Like, you you took us there organically. We're in a time of, I don't know if you noticed, some partisan passions in our body politic. For most people, you call it, they read the headlines in in, in terms of politics. I say they read the headlines in terms of culture war.
2: That is actually a far better way to say that, and I'm going to steal it from you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And this just gets compounded by the fact that our government is not functioning the way it should. We have a legislative branch that is utterly dysfunctional, a veritable ghost town, all, I guess almost. Uh, we have a, an executive branch that is temperamental, changes with every election, and could completely reverse course. And so the only place where long-term decisions are being made on policy, on the law, is the Supreme Court. And in the public's eye, has turned SCOTUS into the site where the culture war gets adjudicated. So do you see a discrepancy, to say the least, between how, what the public sees as the role of the Supreme Court and what the Supreme Court actually is, or how justices understand their role? And do we have a problem there?
2: There is a huge gap there once Congress abrogated its power, desire, authority to legislate about our problems, it fell to the court to fix things. And that has put the court in some um, untenable positions is like the weakest way to say that because even for justices that want it to be Congress's job to fix this statute in question, let's say, they know that they won't. And so again, back to our very first topic, like justices are people too. um, They don't wanna create chaos just because it'll be easier and like it's a punt. Um, Now, by the way, one fun exception to that is Justice Gorsuch's opinion in a case called McGirt last term where Congress just wrote uh, a law kind of poorly. And the result was that most of Eastern Oklahoma is now considered Indian territory for criminal law purposes, but maybe a whole bunch of other purposes we'll find out. Um, You know, he was like, look, I know this will cause chaos, but you're the ones who wrote the stupid law. Rewrite it, pass something else. That's fine. You can fix this with a wave of a pen, but it's not my job to fix your statute for you. That actually is happening more and more rarely. And so the result is Congress does even less because they don't have to, there's no pressure to, and the courts find more of these political arguments at their foot. Um, It's bad for the court, but it's really bad for the country. You want the politically accountable branches to pass legislation to solve our problems. You don't want nine people in robes doing so. And I think we're seeing why. Like these culture wars are the result of that. Um, So I blame Congress entirely. The problem is the way the incentives are aligned in Congress. Right now, the incentives are not aligned to do anything. And that sucks. But I'm equally
0: concerned by the shifting expectations of the public. Because at some point, that also affects policy. It also affects actual politics because... Elections are decided based on the way people think it will affect the courts, and because that's actually the prize. They're not voting for Congress because they want Congress to pass law. They vote for Congress because they want the Senate to confirm their justices.
2: It's an extension of the Butt Gorsuch voters. Like, there's more and more Butt Gorsuch voters every time Congress punts and the courts take up the issue. It just breeds more of these types of voters. Understandably so, they're being rational actors. Um, you know, a member of Congress of the House recently... And said, by the way, the
0: butt Gorsuch works both ways.
2: Although, um, at least there's every bit of evidence that there's about 15% more Republican butt Gorsuch voters compared to Democratic butt Gorsuch voters. But that dad is getting a little older. I, I was
0: just going to say this, because judging by by the atmosphere in, in Democratic cities and in uh, conversations with with Democratic voters... You can tell that this is shifting. You can tell. Even just the conversation about, the stupid conversation about court packing shows you, you know, drudging up, disinterring this phrase that until recently belonged to the dusty annals of uh, judicial and political history and adopting it as a policy. It shows you how crazed up, how revved up everyone is about the Supreme Court. It shows you that the Supreme Court is no longer perceived as the institution responsible for governmental stability, but the stage or the arena on which you get to see the other team being dealt a blow could this end up affecting the court and how the court actually does its business?
2: I think it already has you know um, the court packing this current push for court packing will fail, but I absolutely think if you look at Um, some of the opinions at the end of last term, as Biden's running for president, as the court packing calls um, are getting stronger, uh, you have an abortion decision where Roberts flips the exact same statute had come up in 2015. He voted to uphold it. And this time he voted to strike it down saying that, well, but like the court already voted to strike it down in 2015. So I'm just going to continue that precedent. Uh, you have the Bostock opinion on that we talked about with uh, sex in Title VII, including protections for gender identity and sexual orientation. Um, you had a, you know, the McGirt thing. Like uh, The result of that is that it's very hard for the left to say, well, these are purely political decisions. They're coming down exactly on partisan lines. Therefore, we're going to treat it like a partisan actor. The court's aware of that. The more those decisions happen, and I think this term you see a lot of Nine zero decisions, even when they're having these little intra fights and like I concur in part two A, but not part two C. Um, they're very aware. I mean, Justice Breyer is wildly against court packing. He gave a two hour speech um about it. They're aware that part of the way to defeat court packing, to maintain the institution, is to not look like you can predict the outcome based on who appointed who. I think that they're taking that pretty seriously. And I think the results, especially this term, but also last term, bear that out.
0: And and you seriously think that there is a chance that if that wasn't a threat, if the public mood would have been different, results would have been different?
2: Yeah, I guess I do a little. Yeah. Wow.
0: Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, in this way- is the
2: argument about the chief, right? Where some right, people right. say that that is undermining the rule of law, if you're willing to change your vote based on something other than the facts of the case before you. And others say, yeah, but surely the American experiment is more important because if that falls, then the rule of law is gone anyway. And I'm sympathetic. The idea, if you add justices to the Supreme Court, the rule of law is gone then. And I think, you know, I, I try not to take a whole lot of sides in the sort of partisan culture war parts of the court, but It is so disingenuous when people say it's no big deal to pack the court because it was never set at nine justices. Yes, and they were subtracting and adding justices, not for those partisan reasons back then. So it didn't undermine the rule of law. And by the way, (laughs) you want to go back to the rule of law at the time of Dred Scott? It wasn't great, folks. Um, That's what the Supreme Court was back then. You know, the history of the Supreme Court, it has not always been such. It has built that institution. It has built its legitimacy in the public's eyes, brick by brick. And, you know, the famous Justice Jackson, the Supreme Court made its opinion. Let's see them enforce it. That resulted in the Trail of Tears.
0: Vanessa's uh, spouse, who's still recovering from last night. I find myself arguing with him exactly along these lines. I find myself channeling my inner briar in bringing... Jackson's famous statement, but the, the entire process of developing legitimacy. And it's one of the 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 vanities of the present of the present, as we discussed, that assumption that because we were born into a version of American democracy that is stable, that it has an equilibrium between between the branches, assumes that this is just how things are, and that it's simply resilient enough to withstand any small changes that policymakers might come up with. And again, by the way, this is not just a, a, a Democratic problem. I would argue, and I don't know if you'd agree, that what McConnell did with Merrick Garland really pressured pu- the, the public legitimacy of the courts. And the, in many ways, I think it has created or at least radically exacerbated the current um, nomination arms race on both sides.
2: So the confirmation battles are so... R- montague and capulet at this point
0: you're going to go all the way back to bork aren't you
2: a lot of people started paying attention at the merrick garland phase of the confirmation battles and i think that's the mistake that mcconnell made was sort of assuming that everyone was 45 years old surely
0: you remember bork you remember what your team has done so i'm right. in the clear
2: yeah reed got rid of the filibuster y'all you know we have a whole verb to bork someone and it doesn't mean boink um And then they say like, yeah, but there was stuff happening before Bork. Um, I think the confirmation battles have become so toxic and the justices want so badly for that not to be the case. And there is nothing they can really do about it. I would argue that what the Merrick Garland rallying cry became for the left, the Kavanaugh hearings became for the right. Mm -hmm. And so you have both sides so much more entrenched than they ever have been on this issue. I do, uh, to clarify something I said, I said that I found it so disingenuous what the left was saying about packing the court. I want to be clear, if it were a 6-3 court appointed by Democrats, absolutely the right would be the ones arguing that packing the court is a totally fine thing to do, I think. And I would also say that's illegitimate. So um, I think it happens to be the Democrats making this argument right now uh, it's not that I think it's a particularly Democrat-based argument.
0: And do you think that it's possible, do you worry that in 10, 20 years, we might get a new crop of you know, l- l- law students that are are have, have absorbed the current passions of the culture war, actually changing the system internally in, sa- in a way that is more receptive and responsive to culture war arguments than institutional ones?
1: Right, those students that were crying at Trump's election, <laughs> yeah. where, where do they go? Where do they go? Or in, the opposite in, side, in yeah. You can
0: see some of that logic with the deeply misguided people who infiltrated the Capitol on January 6th. As, as you said, if you tell them and convince them that democracy is being stolen, what's a more democratic and patriotic response? and an American response than organizing a mob and launching an onslaught on the house of government.
2: That is absolutely true. And it is not to excuse any behavior, but absolutely you tell people that their country is under threat from tyrants. Um, and that an election was just stolen, which is the bedrock of our democracy. Yeah. They did the thing that they thought patriots do. Um, yeah. And again, like I, I think you could easily imagine the situation being flipped where Uh, Donald Trump did try to steal the election from Joe Biden, Uh, people would have showed up uh, on the on the left. Um, So, you know, I'm very bad at predicting long term future events. I will not do that. I will say, however, in order for that to really work out, either the incentives have to change pretty dramatically, or one side has to unilaterally disarm and the other side has to acknowledge that. Um, I tried in my own very small way to see if I could contribute to that. So I was the president of the Harvard Federalist Society when Elena Kagan was the dean. I got to know her well. I I mean, I told you, I think she's brilliant. I think she's the best writer on the court. I thought that back then when she got nominated, there was this discussion because she hadn't been a judge that she wasn't well qualified to be a justice. So I agreed to be on a, uh, like, you know, before the White House press corps saying, look, I'm about as conservative as you get. I am the president, the former president of the Harvard Federalist Society, the largest student chapter in the country. And I'm telling you, I think she's well-qualified. That has made no difference over time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like there was no army behind me being like, aha, this will solve the confirmation problems. Uh, it got a lot of people on the right pretty angry at me, and um, you know, won me no goodwill on the left because they assumed I was doing it for some nefarious, secret conservative uh, purpose. Anyway, and I think that is part of the problem you see in almost every culture war. Switching sides is punished, not rewarded. Like, <laughs> uh, and I'm thinking here, you know, of the never Trump Republicans. Um, you know, the left is very quick to say that like, look, if you're a Republican, you're still a white supremacist just because you're against Donald Trump. Like, guys, take the W. These people are trying to join in your cause. Who cares if y'all agree on voter ID? My God, there are bigger things at issue here. Um, And in our current politics, for some reason, it's not addition, it is subtraction. And so there's just not a lot of incentive to have strange bedfellows. You only want bedfellows that you've known for a very long time and you're in a committed relationship with. <laughs> I have no n- nasty tweets that can surface up later. <laughs> that's, oh God, well, that's a whole, a whole other conversation that I think is unfortunate.
0: So last question. I, so I'm going to put you you're on the pessimist side.
2: I'm an optimist about America. It's just like on every individual question, I might sound a little pessimistic.
0: While the individual parts may be close to doomed, in sum, They are bright and hopeful.
2: Going back, uh, you know, even though I I guess some part of me knows that this isn't true, uh, the American experiment is the most radical one that has ever been tried on Earth. I refuse to think it's going to fail on our watch. Hmm.
0: So, my final question is something that I I like asking people generally What do you think are currently the worst blind spots on both sides?
2: Yeah. um, Look, on the left, I think the two major blind spots are huge culture war issues, which generally are going to be where the blind spots are. The more it's a team sport, the less you're willing to engage in the other side's arguments. Uh, Affirmative action. And also
0: the more you think you have to lose.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, Affirmative action and abortion. Um, I think that the terms pro-life and pro-choice are meaningless. I think we need to start talking to people about. Like what. What is a law you actually want? What do you, where do you think the government's role is in this? You know, like at the press briefing yesterday, the day before, they asked Jen Psaki, does the president believe that a 15-week-old fetus is a human being? And she said, if you're asking if the president believes that a woman has a right to choose, the answer is yes. No, that's like the worst way for us to have this conversation. Let, you know, even if he says, yes, I believe it's a human. That like then let's talk about what policies stem from that. I don't think that just because we abandon the terms pro choice and pro life, that dictates the policy outcome at all. I, I so I think the left has a problem in refusing, and look, the right does to some extent too. I think that, um, frankly, I think the left has more of a problem than the right on that topic. I think affirmative action, seeing everything through the lens of race, but then saying that some races should just bear the brunt of the problem, namely Asian Americans. Um, But also, I mean, my God, our laws can be very strange when it comes to even like asylum rules and stuff. Like, I'm going to get some of this slightly wrong, but, you know, if you're from Iraq, you can't, you know, ask for asylum. But if you're from Vietnam, you can. You know, if you're from Japan, you can. But if you're from Korea, you can't. Like, there are some... Some oh no I'm sorry it's not asylum it's on um, uh, business loans like small business administration loans etc sort of what are the disadvantaged groups in the country that can get priority status on those loans it's bizarre and to divvy people up that way I think the last thing you want people in the United States to do if our history tells us anything is to identify with their race above all else uh, the voting electorate in the United States is 72 percent white. What do you think happens if you tell everyone that race is the most important defining feature of who you are? We did that before. Not a good look. Okay, so that's the left. On the right, um, 100% immigration. What the, what, what? This isn't even functioning. And we're just keeping it as a system because no one's willing to have a conversation about what could be better literally anything by the way would be better anything than this um but they refused to have that conversation because it is easier to win votes by talking about the problem than by proposing a solution uh i think the death penalty is sort of one that's maybe been forgotten hmm. uh i think you know uh history can change and what's necessary for deterrence, for punishment, etc., can change even if it's not cruel and unusual. I don't think the death penalty is unconstitutional. I think it's stupid. Um, so, like, that's an example where I think the right.
0: You know, this is actually interesting because uh, I, I remember, in, look, Trump and Barr had this moment late in in his, in his presidency of p- federal corporate punishment revivalism, and I was just wondering who's. Whose appetite is this serving? Now, the states that, that want to execute prisoners are, are, are doing it. And I don't see a lot of uh, propensity on the left to, to fight it as they did maybe in the 90s. So what electorate exactly is being served by this? What culture war is being fought
2: here? Well, we're about to find out because you know, we've had a 30% rise in homicides in huh. 63 of our 66 major cities. Uh, New York city had a 53% rise in homicides, hundred percent rise in shootings. Yeah. Like we're about to have a repeat of the nineties in terms of our politics. Yeah. I think 2022 could be all about public safety issues and criminal justice reform. Bye bye. That's gone now. Um, and I am someone who is against over definitely at the federal level, but even at the state level, um, I'm going to lose this war. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sarah, thank you so much.
2: Thanks, guys. Yeah, so closing thought go read The Great Dissenter or just read the Wikipedia page on Justice uh, Harlan, and that will get you in the mood to go read about him more. Um, We should all aspire to be Justice Harlan's on some issue in our own life. I loved your last question because I think it is the question that Justice Harlan answered correctly for his time. And I think that too many of us don't even ask that question. And every day we should be asking, how can I be more like Justice Harlan today? What is that issue that no one else sees that I can fight for?
1: Do you have a poster of him up yet in your house?
0: Or just, or just a tattoo?
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know what? My son just turned one year old. Like, is it too early to get him a little Harlan tattoo <laughs> on his little butt? <laughs>
0: <laughs> or, uh, or at least a uh, uh, What Would Harlan Do t shirt? Yes.
2: Oh, man. I hope they make those. I'm going to go is find it. Is too him. late to rename him Harlan? <laughs> well, you know. I, I have a rule in my house that like whatever mammal comes in the door next gets the next name on the list. So who mm-hmm. knows? Could be a baby, could be a dog, could be a tortoise. You never know who's going to get named Harlan.
0: Could be a bear. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm very into cicada, so we're just lucky right. I didn't name a, a <laughs> yeah. could only live for five weeks.
1: Well, it's not a mammal, so it wouldn't have counted anyway. <laughs> oh, good point. Yes, I did specify mammals, not arthropods.
0: So Sarah, are you, are you, are you dying under the, this, this, this uh, inundation of, of court decisions?
2: No, thriving. I (laughs) was made, I was made for this storm.
0: Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you're feeling generous. And until next time, stay sane. What do you feel like talking about this weekend? this pre-weekend Oh, Friday. I'm
2: always for more sooner, right? like, a I'm a hungry, hungry hippo. Like, I will just <laughs> eat all the pebbles and gorge myself. Um, I don't worry about the fast. There's, uh, like, a movie from the late 90s with Ethan Hawke called Gattaca. Yeah. And yeah. the whole, yeah, so the whole premise of the movie is, like, you know, this guy who shouldn't be able to overcome and, like, be as strong as he is, is, and his brother asks him, you know, how were you always able to beat me swimming out into the ocean? He says, I never left anything for the way back. Like, that's my life mantra. Who cares what happens after this?